It's the mid-1970s in a small, quiet village in Venda. Hundreds of kilometers away in Soweto, a simmering anger is beginning to build, a rage that will eventually drive thousands of schoolchildren out onto the streets on a cold and deadly winter's day to protest against their apartheid oppressors. But here in Venda, away from the pressure cooker of the city, a young boy sits transfixed as he watches his grandmother sculpt a deceptively simple clay pot. This area, now part of Limpopo, with its rolling hills and its proud history and its ancient giant baobabs, is the very last place in South Africa to be conquered by settlers, to be forced into a Western ideal of modernity. And the young boy, with his eyes fixed on that clay pot, He's drinking in age-old indigenous knowledge that one day he'll use to change the world. When South Africa is finally free, he'll help create machines that can speak and taste and smell. He'll become an expert in artificial intelligence and lead one of the country's biggest universities. He'll be recognized with one of our nation's greatest honors, and he'll help a president chart a new way forward for South Africa in an uncertain world. I'm Bongani Bingwa and this is The Professional, a podcast from ProfMed about how the world of work is changing in new and unexpected ways. In this episode, we're on the front lines of the revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, that is. We're finding out from Professor Tilizi Marala just what 4IR is all about what it means for South Africa, and whether we're all going to be out of jobs once AI takes over. And we hear how a young boy from Venda took the skills that he learned at his family home and used them to help reshape the way we think about the world and our place in it. When I was growing up, I was surrounded by great thinkers. My grandmother was uh, an absolutely great thinker. She probably was uh, my first engineering teacher. She used to make clay pots and she used to use engineering approaches that I later found out that uh, uh, they are quite useful in modern engineering. Before he was a professor, Tilizi Marwala grew up in this little village called Dutuni in what used to be Venda, now the far north of Limpopo. The family didn't have much. His father was a teacher, his mother an administrator. And his grandmother his very first engineering teacher. She had the super effective system for making pots. Step one was always find the right clay. The way you make clay pots, uh, you have to go and get clay. It is next to the river. It's unfortunate that young, young kids today don't know that clay is found next to the river. That whole process of uh, identifying clay, uh, when I was studying engineering in the United States as an undergraduate student, uh, they called it uh, material selection. They even have sophisticated software that is able to assist uh, one to select the best material. Step two, use skill and heat to turn that slippery fine clay into something useful. The pot is a very sophisticated structure because it has to be, it has to be round, but it has to be hollow and it has to have a small opening. If it is too thick, if the walls are too thick, you need more fire to, to warm the pot. 
if it is too thin, it won't be strong enough to be durable. So that is, uh, we call that optimization. Knowing the, the right size that will make sure that it is not going to, to crack too fast, uh, but it's not too large to, uh, to take uh, a great deal of energy to use it. Step three, after baking, cool your pot down, but not too fast. And that process of cooling very slowly is what is called annealing. Wait, Annie what? Annealing is when you heat something up, like clay or glass or metal, and then you allow it to cool really slowly. And this actually changes the material's physical properties, making it tougher, less likely to break. In artificial intelligence, you have a, a very advanced software or approach that is called simulated annealing which is used uh, in our electronic maps to find shortest distances between two points. My grandmother did not know about simulated annealing, but she knew that you had to call it very, very slowly. And Chiliti's grandmother didn't just stop there when she was making pots. She was also very serious about quality control. After that, she will knock each pot. And if it rings for a long time, it is a good pot. If it rings for a short time, it is a bad pot. Now, uh, when I was in engineering school, if it rings for a long time, you call it a, a, a lightly damped structure. If it rings for a short time, you call it a, a damped structure. If it rings for a short time, maybe you have moisture that is uh, trapped inside uh, the pot. But as his grand got older, Chilizzi realized something was wrong. She was starting to throw away perfectly good pots, pots that sounded right. It turned out she was losing her hearing and her QC test was beginning to let her down as a result. So that is why uh, we have developed a piece of technology that listens to the, to the sound of structures, whether they are bridges. And based on the sound of structures, uh, it is able to tell you whether the structure is in good condition or not. Same principles, but different technology. Of course, uh, the listening is done with um, sophisticated equipment called uh, accelerometers, and the making sense of the data is done with artificial intelligence. And of course, uh, uh, the algorithm does not get old, and therefore it will not be able to throw away the good pots as my grandmother was doing as she was aging. So as a kid, Tiliti was picking up all this knowledge, all these skills in his own home without knowing that one day they would feed into his career in ways he could never have predicted. And he was learning some of them in school too, but again, not in the ways you'd expect. One thing that uh, I really appreciated about my, 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 my formative years is that uh, it was the time when, when, when creativity was still valued. We had to go and, and use... Uh, a clay to make cars, for example, you know, it was part of what you what you had to do. Uh, we had to to be assigned uh, at the age of seven or eight uh, a small garden at school where you have to go and take seeds and then you plant it. You make sure that uh, uh, in, you you put enough. Uh, 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 fertilizers uh, and so on and so on. and those things are actually quite complex if you, if I think about it for an eight year old uh, kid to be able to do we took it for granted uh, but but I think it is things like that when I was growing up where people were encouraging you to create 
to create whether it is a, a garden and tend to it or to create a, a, a clay car that became very very instrumental later on in my life just a few kilometers down the road from Dutuni and Chilitsi's family home is Mbilwi Secondary School today it's one of the biggest schools in Limpopo and it produces a 100% matric pass rate year after year. Back in the 1980s, it was already an incubator for some of the region's brightest minds. Bidu was a school where you had uh, quite, uh, quite hard-working um, uh, uh, students. And many of them, because of their hard work, uh, went on to do uh, much greater things. Uh, you know, the prefect of my of my course, my, my class, ended up being, uh, at one stage, uh, the editor of the City Press more than 10 years ago, Katuma Maila. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the other person who also became a prefect in one of the years uh, ended up being a, a, a CEO of Daimler Financial Services uh, Company, uh, obviously part of the Mercedes-Benz uh, stable of companies. And, uh, you know, we had... Uh, you know, um, a student who was a year ahead of us who ended up being, um, you know, a, a famous uh, researcher at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So Mbiri was actually quite exciting. But what was the formula? I think the formula was hard work. When you look at your teachers and they are serious about what they do, uh, you know, and, and when you get out of, um, of order, they are able to... To, 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 to put you in order because they can be able to do that uh, because whatever they are telling you to do, you can see them doing this. It was actually quite uh, exciting for us. In 1989, Chilitsi's matric year, he defied the odds and he won the National Youth Science Olympiad by writing a set of incredibly difficult science exams. He did the best out of everyone who sat for those papers. The prize? A trip to London. An enormous adventure for a teenager who'd spent his whole life in rural Limpopo. I dreamt of, uh, of, of leaving that part of the world and going very, very far. And just to, um, to, 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 to put it into perspective, I never actually left that part of the world until I was uh, 16 years old. So I spent uh, almost uh, the first 16 years of my life within a geographical area, within... Um, a 60-kilometer radius. And obviously when I did uh, leave uh, that part of the world, uh, my whole horizon actually uh, opened up. Fresh out of high school, that stunning win at the Olympiad and his trip to London, Chilitsi knew he wanted to be a mechanical engineer. He got a scholarship to study in the United States and he graduated magna cum laude. He did his master's at the University of Pretoria and completed his PhD in computational intelligence at Cambridge University in the UK. And all the while, he remembered those lessons he'd learned sitting with his grandmother. I was at a college called St. John's College, uh, University of Cambridge. University of Cambridge is basically a collection of colleges uh, that collectively call themselves the University of Cambridge. And uh, one of the things that we're worried about is how do you, uh, how do you assure yourself, how, how, how do companies assure themselves that the products they're making are of good quality? 
And this uh, uh, obviously extended back to my grandmother's uh, clay pots mechanism. So what we said we are going to do was that we are going to listen to the movement of, let's say it is a, a car engine, uh, we're going to listen to the the sound of it. We're going to analyze it, and then we're going to use artificial intelligence uh, in order to make sense as to whether the engine is actually in good condition or not. Of course, these technologies uh, are now applied in hospitals to monitor uh, the condition of uh, patients in critical care, uh, where you just look at the signals and artificial intelligence makes sense of that and informs the doctor um, without necessarily any human person in, in the picture. So that is really what I did. Uh, so I did that for, I was at Cambridge for three years. Uh, uh, exciting times. Uh, and then uh, later left University of Cambridge to go to the University of London Imperial College uh, where I was a postdoctoral fellow uh, working for the European uh, uh, Commission uh, project on intelligent software we call them software agents intelligent uh, agents uh, and, and this has been quite an exciting journey for me these days professor Marala sits at the intersection of artificial intelligence and, well, everything. Engineering, medicine, computer science, social science, finance, economics, even blockchain. You name it, he's thought about how AI might interact with it, enhance it, or replace it completely. As an academic, he's proposed new theories, developed new concepts, and co-invented everything from an artificial voice box to software that can bluff when it's playing poker. As Vice-Chancellor at the University of Johannesburg, he's repositioning his university to tackle the changes that AI will inevitably bring to our society. Over the years, his scientific work has netted him more than 45 awards, local and international, including the prestigious Order of Mapungubwe, South Africa's highest honour. And this mix of experience he has in a bunch of different fields, it makes him the perfect person to be leading the way forward into a future that's coming, whether we like it or not. A world profoundly different to our own, thanks to what's been called the fourth industrial revolution. A world in which much of our work is done by robots and computers. The post-work world will will have... Uh... Uh, factories with fewer people. Uh, it will be uh, machines actually doing things that are done now by human beings, whether it's in hospitals. And in this regard, uh, the number of people who are going to die in hospitals because of, uh, I don't know... Human error. Human error is going to, to, to completely disappear because it's going to be done by, 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 by machines. But... It will also mean that we need to think the concept of of work, job sharing. It will mean it will mean we have to think of the concept of a social contract. Some people are saying we need to start thinking about universal basic income. For you to be able to achieve to, to achieve that and afford it, your productivity must be very, very high. To understand the strange new post-work world that we're heading into and how quickly and dramatically our lives might change, we need to take a step back. 
back to the 18th century, in fact, when the first Industrial Revolution started to take hold. It's the one we learn about in school, the one we know as THE Industrial Revolution, and it was all about machines. So there was this crazy period of industrialization that kicked off in the second half of the 1700s. It saw jobs moving from fields to factories for the first time. Steam engines were invented, offering us a new type of energy. And very soon, humanity moved away from agriculture and embraced industry. Now, during the Second Industrial Revolution, at the turn of the 20th century, things got even more interesting. It's also known as the Technological Revolution, and it changed the way we live, the way we work, the way we travel, the way we communicate, even the way we eat. It was the beginning of electrification and the end of the horse-drawn carriages. Everything from railroads and cars to the combustion engine and the telephone they all became widespread during that second huge period of change. Hello, I am Macintosh. The third industrial revolution was all about computers and automation, and it hit towards the end of the last millennium. Think Silicon Valley, electronics, microchips and robots, entire production lines being automated. We went from tapes and floppy disks to CDs, downloads and flash drives in a crazy short period of time. And then... The fourth industrial revolution? That's now. The age of the internet, the internet of things, artificial intelligence and big data. It's about how a bunch of different technologies are being merged together for the first time. We're only in the beginning stages... But this revolution, it's happening really fast. And it's already turning some of the world's oldest, most traditional industries on their heads. Beer is the oldest recorded recipe in the world. It was being made by the ancient Egyptians as far back as 5000 BC. The crisp golden brew is still enjoyed by millions of people around the world today. It is something quintessentially human, something only we could invent and something only we could truly appreciate. That is, until Chilizi Marwala invented a computer that could appreciate beer too. If you work for the breweries, uh, you produce liquor. I don't know whether that is good or not, you know. Uh, the beer has to taste good. <laughs> exactly, you know. And, and what happened in, in breweries at the time is that uh, every morning you will have uh, 11 people who will come and taste the beer. So they will have all sorts of brews that have just been done in the last few hours. And then they will put them in small cups and uh, these tasters will just come and taste and put a taste score, taste and put a taste score and so on and so forth. But alongside that there would be a comprehensive chemical characterization of each of the brew. So you know the chemical characterization of the brew. So on one side, you have the chemical characterization, and on the other side, you have a taste score, which is basically an average score of 11 tasters that have tasted that brew. Now, this is actually a very exciting problem from an artificial intelligence perspective because you can now 
design a neural network that is going to take the chemical uh, characterization, which is objective, and be able to predict the taste score because you have historical data to be able to to do that. And once you are able to do that, then there is no need for the human taster to come into the picture. Uh, therefore, you can just take the chemical characterization and estimate the taste score. So now the question is, is that, uh, what do you call that? Uh, we called it, it has two names. One is that you can think of it as an artificial tongue. Yeah, because it is something that uh, removes somebody from using their tongue. But it was not uh, just the tongue because some of the chemical characteristics are things that a human being would have to to smell. So it is both a tongue and a smell and the nose. And this mechanical beer taster is one example in millions of a new kind of intelligent machine, something that can do a task as well, if not better than a human. Over the next seven years, as many as six million jobs are going to be affected in South Africa alone because of automation. These days, around the world, robots can look at an x-ray and diagnose a patient quicker and more accurately than a trained doctor. We've got AI news anchors, computerized chefs, AI lawyers that can draft watertight contracts, even self-driving cars. All these technologies still have a long way to go, but each time a computer or robot becomes able to do something better than us, we lose more jobs. Technology has always displaced certain types of jobs. I'm told that uh, 50 years ago, when you used to go to an elevator, there used to be somebody who was employed to basically uh, control the elevator because it was not as simple as just pressing a button that I'm going to the fifth floor. Those people were called elevator minders. They no longer exist today because you can be able to do that yourself. That is an example of... uh, of, of, of a human being who had a job who is now displaced. If you go to, you see movies of roads 70 years ago, you will realize that when you came to the corner, it was not traffic lights. It was a human being directing who should be passing and who should not be passing. Now, those people in many modern cities are no longer employed to do that. In South Africa, probably we have it uh, if we have uh, problems with our electricity and and the traffic light is not working. Again, uh, uh, those people who used to be employed to control traffic are no longer employed because they've been displaced by automation. Now, in the era of artificial intelligence, where technology has become intelligent, it is able to think like a human being the pace of automation is accelerating. Because it is accelerating, uh, uh, even jobs that we never thought would be automated, like in a call center, you can now be able to get an artificially intelligent uh, uh, um, chat box that will be able to answer quite sophisticated questions. Either way, the fourth industrial revolution is going to be a game changer. In a best-case scenario, 4IR means we're freed from everyday drudgery. We can pursue more meaningful, satisfying work or dabble in the arts or experiment with entirely new jobs. 
Why? Because computers are doing all the menial tasks for us. And because all the basics of work are taken care of, maybe all our basic needs can be too. That's where the concept of a universal basic income comes in. The idea that everyone, regardless of whether they work or not, gets a certain amount of money to live off every year. So we're not working because we need to put food on the table or we need to make rent. We're working because we want to. Computers do the rest. But the worst case scenario? It's bad. 4IR could also mean an almost doomsday-like scenario. Widening inequality, mass unemployment and talent shortages. A world where only a rare few have full-time jobs backed up by colleagues in other countries and consultants and contractors who are brought in on a project-by-project basis. The rest of us? We have to scrounge for whatever's available – whatever's left once the majority of work is being done by computers and robots. The ultimate peace job market. It's this worst-case scenario that Professor Marala is trying to steer South Africa away from. He's currently the deputy chair of the Presidential Commission on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. He's looking at every aspect of 4IR, from the future of work and how it will impact us, to the infrastructure we need and the laws that will govern automation. And this issue is such a big deal that President Cyril Ramaphosa is chairing the commission himself. People and companies are now moving more and more towards saying, I'd rather have a robot, I'd rather have a machine, I'd rather have a device to do this and this and that rather than have people. So we are going to see a hemorrhaging not only in our country, throughout the world, hemorrhaging on employment. Many more people are going to lose jobs. The Commission's basic approach to 4IR is that we can't stop it, so how can we embrace it? That's the central question that Professor Marala and his team are grappling with. Ultimately, what we want is to come up with a strategy that will be uh, the national strategy on how South Africa uh, positions itself so that it does not become irrelevant in the global economic community. The problem is, South Africa is facing a range of issues, historically unrelated to 4IR. These are going to make it more difficult for us to keep pace. The deep and enduring consequences of apartheid, which have left the country with high unemployment, a lack of skills and a faulty education system. For Professor Marala, the way to fix these issues is to go back to basics, to refocus on the things that helped him develop as a child despite his circumstances. Passionate educators, discipline, a strong family system. We can't subtract ourselves from the fourth industrial revolution. I think South Africa's problems is not because of resources. I think we have enough resources to be able to skill our people. South Africa's problems is, number one, they de they, 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 they disintegration of the black family has a huge impact on the success of young uh, black kids when they come to university. That's something that we need to, to think about and how we're going to, to deal with it. Secondly, because of that disintegration, uh, what we have, we have uh, 
young kids who do not have somebody who is making sure that they are supposed to be in class and when they come from class they are supposed to actually do homework and somebody makes sure that they have done their homework now how do we and then obviously if you go to to our schooling you will realize that you have schools where teachers disappear for days without necessarily anybody to holding them to account so for us the acquisition of skills is not a problem if we sort out discipline in our society if we sort out the disintegration of of of, of certainly the black family then we are going to get those skills that are needed for us to succeed in the fourth industrial revolution so once our kids get the support they need and we get the skills we need it's all about buckling down and getting to work and doing that might mean making sacrifices up front to get things right in the long term we know uh, what is wrong with our educational system we know what is wrong with our society we know why we are deindustrializing uh, deindustrializing what we need to do is to be decisive we have to be decisive because the problems that we confront require sacrifice i'll give you an example china is the second largest economy in the world and maybe you know the concept of a lost generation actually originate from china because if from 1966 to 1977 there was no schooling in china it was during the time of the cultural revolution many of its leaders were either in 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 the rural areas uh, uh, uh in exile in the rural areas uh, including deng xiaoping who is the father of modern china deng xiaoping heard of him 40 years ago he changed China and the world. Thanks to his reforms, the country became an economic powerhouse. Hundreds of millions of people were lifted out of poverty. There were massive trade-offs of course for the environment, for society, and for families thanks to China's one-child policy. But ultimately, his pragmatic approach, it worked. It transformed China into a modern superpower. What did Deng Xiaoping did when he arrived there? When he arrived into the scene, uh, knowing very well that there is uh, a lost generation, he was decisive. He was decisive to the point that uh, he completely reorientated the Chinese government to be much more practically orientated, results orientated rather than ideologically orientated because remember he was the leader of the Chinese Communist Party which is by definition a very uh, ideological organization and he managed to do that with extreme uh, opposition in fact there is uh, an example where he went to the 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 the, the great hall of the people and uh, when he was speaking everybody was almost insulting him he took out his earphones and said i can't hear you you know he did what needed to be done south africa has its own lost generation thanks to apartheid millions of people who were let down by a broken racist system but what would it take for us to replicate china's extraordinary growth how can we transform our society our country into a powerhouse in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution is it even possible 
the political architecture makes it more difficult for us to replicate that. But we have to do it. We don't have any option. It's either we take tough decisions or we shall perish. What would those tough decisions be? One of it is, um, you know, you have to reconfigure uh, our industrial strategy. We need to identify what is our competitive edge. How are we going to compete with the rest of the world? If it means flexible labor practices, then then let's do it. If it means uh, if it means uh, you know rationalizing our you know our 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 state, let's do it. You know uh, uh, because all we need to do we have to be driven by we have to be utilitarian in in approaching this. We have to be driven by what is best for South Africa, not in the short term but in the long term. Professor Marwala is helping the president chart a new way forward for the country in a world in which work as we know it will probably no longer exist. We don't know what it's going to look like or what humans are going to be doing 50 or 100 years from now. We don't know how the shift is going to affect our identity as a species or as individuals. But that young boy from Venda whose own world changed immeasurably over the course of his life and who is now helping to lead the way into the future, he's convinced that we need to adapt or die. And his message to South Africa is clear. We should not be afraid of technology. We should understand. We should understand the world that we are coming to and make sure that we orientate ourselves so that our people are still relevant so that our people have good standards of living, they're educated, and also so that our people can be able to capture the new jobs that are going to emerge. Because what is going to happen in the post-work era is that, post-work era is that some jobs are going to disappear. But others will come. Some jobs are going to change, and some jobs are going to, uh, uh, to come. So we need to prepare our people for the change that is going to come to the jobs that are going to survive, and the new jobs that are going to uh, emerge. I'm Bongani Bingwa, and you've been listening to The Professional, a podcast from ProfMed about how the world of work is changing in new and unexpected ways.